Go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 15. We are finishing up the Gospel of Mark. I forgot I was going to count up the number of sessions we've done on Mark, but I think it's been about seven months, if I remember right, something like that. It's been, uh, I think it's probably 24, 25 sessions we broke this down to, which, to believe it or not, is the longest time I've ever spent in one particular series. So it's been kind of challenge. Normally, uh, it's hard to do that, but uh, it's been a great, great study and a great challenge for me. I hope it has been for you as well. So Mark chapter 15 this morning, we're going to finish the, the book. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul defines the gospel as having four main elements. I want you to keep your finger in Mark chapter 15 there. But I want you to turn with your other hand to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll make you do some biblical gymnastics this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm going to read the first eight verses. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I, for I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, the Christ, or that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Basically what we have here is Paul sort of laying out the Gospels. You'll notice he mentioned four primary elements of the Gospel. The first is that Christ died for our sins. The second was that he was buried. He told us he was then raised from the dead. And then finally that he appeared. All four of these are critical components of the gospel. You remove any one and we no longer have the gospel. Now last week we witnessed the first of those four elements, the crucifixion of Christ, the fact that Christ died for our sins. Today in our passage, Mark is going to walk us through the remaining three elements of the gospel. That he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared to hundreds. If you remember, as we've gone through the last six weeks here, we've seen Christ fulfill a variety of different roles, everything from the stricken shepherd to the, to the king who had been condemned last week to the crucified Christ. And now we come to the risen Lord, this final role that Christ fulfilled. And we'll see the gospel played out here, at least the last three elements, that he's buried, was raised, and ultimately that he appeared. So let's look, take a look at Mark chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 40 through 47. It starts with some arrivals. There were some women looking on from a distance. This is after the crucifixion of Christ. There were some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the less, and Jose and Salome or Salome. When he was in Galilee, he used to follow him, or when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. 
When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining from this the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, or Jose, were looking on to see where he was laid. We often focus on the death and the resurrection of Christ, but I think we fail to see or appreciate the importance of the burial. It's actually a fairly critical part of the gospel. There are four different facts here regarding this burial that Mark lays out for us. I want to take a look at these and kind of break them down. The first fact is that he was buried at all. That's something that oftentimes gets overlooked. Normally, when somebody was crucified under Roman law, they weren't allowed to be buried. They were left up either on the cross or they were taken off and thrown basically into the streets. They became food for the crows and the animals. In fact, there was a statement, a popular phrase of the day, that they would be food for crows or an ugly meal for birds of prey and grim scraps for the dogs. Remember, crucifixion wasn't... It was partly about torture. Clearly they wanted the torture, but it was also about humiliation. They created one of the most humiliating forms of, of um, capital punishment at the time. And it was designed to humiliate, and it was designed to make that period of humiliation last as long as possible. And for the Romans, that humiliation continued even after the individual was dead. And so they generally prohibited individuals who were crucified from being buried. They did not want to give them a proper burial. Now, there were exceptions that were given, especially in Jerusalem. However, exceptions were never given for capital offenses like treason. Do you remember what Jesus was tried for? Why is it that, or not tried for, but why Pilate condemned him? It was basically treason, because the Jews had come forward and said that he's an enemy of the state, he tried to tear down the temple, so they made him out to be a terrorist. And so just the fact that Jesus was buried is rather stunning, because he should not have been. Again, it was not typically something they did, especially for treason. So the first fact I think that is important here about the burial is that it happened, happened in the first place. The second important fact regarding the burial of Jesus was who buried him. Normally, when somebody was buried, it was always done by the family, a close family member. But who does the text here tell us actually buried Jesus? It wasn't his family that came to get him. Look at Mark chapter 15, verse 42 again. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came. It says here he was a prominent member of the council. It's actually the Sanhedrin. Who was it that condemned Jesus? It was the Sanhedrin. This is rather remarkable. That one of the individuals who was present at the trial of Jesus, who watched the sham take place and unfold, it was that individual that actually came and asked Pilate for the body. Now, according to Matthew, he was a rich man, had a fair amount of money, which he purchased the tomb here for Christ. It was one of his, probably his family tomb, where his family would have been buried. It was not inexpensive. 
According to Luke, it says that he was a good and righteous man. It says that he had not consented to the Sanhedrin, what they had done to Jesus. So what we basically find is that in the Gospel of Luke, he's portrayed as a very righteous individual that did not go along with the Sanhedrin. One of the few. We're also told here that he had to actually muster up some courage. Luke tells us that he was looking for the kingdom of God, which is a positive thing. It means he was at least had a fairly decent understanding of the scriptures, knew what he was looking for. So he was a righteous member of the Sanhedrin, but we're also told that he had to muster up some courage here. And why might that be? Well, you can imagine. Um, we live in a culture and a time today where if you don't toe the line politically or religiously, the claws come out, don't they? Well, I would imagine that there was a certain amount of fear and trepidation from his fellow Sanhedrin members, especially considering the way that they had behaved. He likely just saw the way that, the, the way that Jesus was treated. And so, a certain amount of fear and trepidation, he probably put his reputation on the line. Now, John also tells us that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. And it says that the reason he was a secret disciple was because he was afraid of the Jews, likely the religious leaders. So Mark again tells us, verse 43, that he gathered up his courage. Gathered up his courage. And again, that's remarkable because this was not a family member. He could have just simply walked away, let the family deal with it. But there was something that drove Joseph of Arimathea to go take the body of Christ down. I I, I can only imagine that he probably um, recognized Christ as righteous. Maybe he believed he was the Son of God. Don't know whether he believed that Christ would rise from the dead. We're not really sure. We're not really told. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yep. Now there's a second man. Mark doesn't mention him here, but anybody know who the second man was? The man who went with Joseph to bury Jesus. It's another fairly, probably one of the most popular scripture verses in the whole entire Bible. You see it at sporting events comes from a passage with this man in it. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world. Who did Jesus say that to? Anybody, anybody remember? Nicodemus, yeah. Now Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin. Now it may very well have been, I would guess here, that they found a certain camaraderie with one another, Joseph and Nicodemus. It says that Nicodemus came at night. Maybe he was a secret disciple of Christ as well. But, Nicodemus is actually the one who brought the mirror and the aloe to prepare the body. So Joseph provided the tomb. Nicodemus also then joined him and brought along the the herbs and the oils to be able to anoint the body of Christ. So again, that's a rather interesting fact, is that it was a non-family member that had buried Jesus. A third important fact regarding the burial of Jesus is that there were eyewitnesses. This is critical as well. Because if you don't have a burial, how can you prove a resurrection? So while John's account of the crucifixion indicates that his disciples might have watched from a distance, there's no indication that any of his disciples saw him being buried. What we do have here, however, is that there were a group of women. Look at verses 39 again and following. It says, 
When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way that he breathed his last, truly this man was the Son of God, is what he exclaimed. And right there, at that moment, we're told that there were some women, verse 40, looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary, Mary, and Salome. Other women as well, it doesn't tell us their names. And so they were actually there, looking on, to watch. If you go down to verse 47... It says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jose, or Joseph, however you want to pronounce it, they were looking on to see where he was laid. What's interesting is in the book of Luke, we're told that they actually saw not just the exact tomb, but how Jesus was laid in the tomb, which means they could see into the tomb. These are some fascinating details because, again, it's going to be critical for the resurrection story. And so the third important fact from this burial is that there were actual eyewitnesses to see him buried. It wasn't just hearsay. People that actually knew the exact tomb and the exact location within the tomb where Jesus was buried. And that's also important because these tombs are oftentimes, family tombs are large, and there were multiple places for the bodies to be laid. And they knew exactly the position, the place that he was, and that will come in handy when we get to the resurrection. A fourth and final fact mentioned is that the tomb was sealed. Look at verse 46 again. Joseph brought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Turn to Matthew chapter 27 with me. Because they didn't just roll a stone in front of the tomb. This tells us what Joseph and Nicodemus did. But Matthew chapter 27... Additional precautions were, were taken by the religious leaders. If we jump down into verse 61 of Matthew 27, and Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure along with the guard. They set a seal on the stone. And so what you have are a number of things that take place here. The Pharisees obviously are concerned that his disciples are going to continue this ruse. They're going to go steal the body and then claim that uh, Jesus had risen from the dead and that it'll be a whole new charade. So they get a guard. They get a couple of guards, another at least two of them, that guarded the tomb. Then they placed a seal on it, which is a Roman seal. If that seal were broken, that was a capital offense. You could be put to death for it. But it also ensures that nobody could open the tomb, take the body, and then roll the stone back. As you would seal it, I don't know how many of you go, when you go fill up with gas, you notice they have a little sticker on it. That if The reason that sticker is there is if somebody opens the, the um, gas pump and changes the way the fuel is calculated, or if they put a skimmer in it, you can tell because the seal's been broken. It's the purpose of the seal. So they put a seal on it. But it also tells us that they secured the tomb. Now, we don't know exactly what that involves. We just know that they somehow put some security measures in place. I don't know if they used Simply Safe or something to secure that so that he couldn't get in or out. But somehow they secured it. 
And it was likely more than just the guards, because he tells them, you secure it any way you can, any way you know how, make it as secure as you possibly can. So somehow, some way, they secured the tomb, likely to make it either impossible or nearly impossible for Jesus' disciples to come and roll away the stone. So it's now not only Jesus buried, but eyewitnesses to it that know the exact location and the fact that it has been secured, locked up, and now guarded by some Roman guards. Now that's important because it goes to the historicity of the event that he indeed was buried, but it also now sets the stage for the resurrection and the empty tomb. Because again, if there is no burial, there's no resurrection and no empty tomb, is there not? So let's go ahead and look at the rest of this here. Mark chapter 16, starting in chapter or verse 1. We'll read the first eight verses or so. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go tell the disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee, and you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now it's pretty clear from the Gospel accounts that nobody expected Jesus to rise from the dead. And we see that here with these women. They actually came to anoint the bodies. If they expected him to rise from the dead, there wouldn't have been any need to anoint his body because the reason they anointed it, to be real frank, is to keep the stench down, to cover up the odor of the decaying body. Plus, they also expected the grave site to be sealed still. They were concerned that somebody would be there to, or not be there to help them to roll away the stone. They didn't know how they were going to get in. So they fully expected to still see this body of Jesus laid exactly where they had seen him laid previously. What they didn't expect to find was an empty tomb. Now who could? Think about this. In all of history, had anybody, anybody been raised from the dead at least from their perspective. No, an unusual thing. And so you can't really blame them for not expecting Christ to rise from the dead, even though he said he would. Because it just plain doesn't happen. So when they arrived, they find the stone rolled away, and the guards had left their posts out of fear. Per uh, Matthew, there was an earthquake, and an angel rolled away the stone. These guys trembled and collapsed in fear. Probably more from the angel than the earthquake. As they enter the tomb, they find an angel sitting to the right of where the body of Jesus was. Matthew Matthew says that there was another angel at the other end, and so it's actually two angels that are in there. Mark only records the one, probably because that's the one they have the conversation with. The angel actually has two important functions here. The first one is that um, he's there simply to explain what happened. Because again, what's the first assumption going to be? You've got an empty tomb, and you have a missing body... What would you think? Yeah, of course somebody stole the body. In fact, according to John's account, that's exactly what Mary Magdalene thought. 
because she begged the angel to return the body. Where have you taken him? Bring him back. But the angel is there to reveal the truth. Look at verse 6 again. He said to them, Do not be amazed. Another better way to read that might be, Do not be shocked. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene. He has indeed been crucified, but he is risen. He's not here. Behold, look, here's the place where he was laid. In other words, he's ba- the angel's basically saying, Look, trust what you see. This, you saw him laid here. Remember, you were here. You saw this. If his body's not here, it's because he's been raised from the dead. So the angel's first purpose there is to explain exactly what happened. To correct their misunderstanding that maybe somebody had taken the body. The second reason that the angel was there, the second function that the angel serves is to remind them of what Jesus had said. It wasn't enough that they simply said, well, he's been raised from the dead because what's even more important than that is that Jesus predicted that he would be raised from the dead. So in other words, they're announcing the fulfillment of Jesus' very own words which goes to who he was, the Son of God. And so, Mark chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus said, but, I, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead to you in Galilee. You notice what the angel says here in verse 7. Go tell the disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. What? Just as he told you. So they're not just announcing the resurrection, but they're also showing how Christ had fulfilled the very thing that he said he would do. And now, where they could find him. Where they could actually find him. I don't have to stress to you the importance of Christ's resurrection because you know that Jesus, had he not risen from the dead, our faith would be in vain. We probably, well, I shouldn't say this, but maybe we would not be here this morning. There'd be nothing to worship, right? People all over the world still do it, not believing in the resurrection of Christ. But our faith would be vain. It would be empty. It would be meaningless. Paul says that we, we, of all people, should be pitied for believing a lie. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Corinthians chapter 15 jump down to verse 12 with me now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead there were factions the Sanhedrin for instance not the Sanhedrin the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection of the dead they didn't believe in life after death the Pharisees did the Sadducees didn't but now apparently within the early church Some were teaching that there was no resurrection of the dead. So Paul says, how can some say there's no resurrection resurrection of the dead? Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Which makes sense, right? If people don't rise from the dead, Christ could not have risen from the dead. Sound logic. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Paul has just got Paul just got done saying that when we preach Christ, we preach that he has been raised from the dead. So Paul says that preaching is in vain, which also now means verse 14 that your faith is in vain. We have sold you a bill of goods. We've lied to you. 
Verse 15, Moreover, are we even found to be false witnesses of God? In other words, we're lying about God if we say Christ was raised from the dead because we testified against God that He raised Christ. So now we're lying about the Father. Because obviously He didn't raise Him from the dead if He didn't rise. If in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men the most to be pitied. Think about that for a moment. What he's basically saying is, our faith, if it only serves a purpose in this life, is an absolute waste. It is worthless. Think about that for a moment. What purpose would there be in being born, living on this planet, only to get old and die with nothing to happen after that? I don't know about you guys. Um, it would be a waste. I would much rather not be born. If that's all you had to look forward to, is to live on this rock, knowing you get older, it's a bummer getting old, folks. <laughs> I love life. But I don't like the fact that I'm getting older here in the creeks and the pops and, you know. But Paul says, if this faith is only good for this life, it's worthless. Everything about our faith is, is locked up in the promise of the resurrection. The promise of life after death. To fix what Adam and Eve broke. It's precisely because Jesus rose from the dead that we believe that we will as well. John chapter 11, verse 25 says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is Christ. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Romans chapter 6, verse 5 says that since we have been baptized into Christ, we are now united with him in the likeness of his death certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Because you and I are in Christ, because he is raised, we are raised. 2 Corinthians 4.14 Paul promises us that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with the Lord Jesus. So, our hope is completely, totally, absolutely wrapped up in the resurrection of Christ. So how important is the resurrection? It's critical. That's why Paul lays it out as one of the core elements of the gospel. This idea that it's all about here and now is false. Satan would love us to focus on the here and now. Satan would love to demote Christ to nothing more than just some good, godly teacher that makes life better here on earth. But that's not why he died. He died so that we might have life. And in order to accomplish that, God had to take Christ and put him on the cross to die in our place and then raise him from the dead so that we might have new life as well and be risen from the dead as well. So, what's the last piece of this puzzle? Actually, two more pieces here, but second to last piece. 
What happens after this? There's another core part to this. It's the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. Mark records that in chapter 16, verses 9 and following. Now, before we jump on that, you may notice that you have some notes in your Bible. How many of you see something indicating verse 9 there, like a bracket or a note or sets it apart somehow? The reason for that is most reputable scholars believe that Mark ended his gospel right there at verse 8. That verses 9 through the rest of the book were not a part of the original. And the reason they believe that is because when you look at uh, manuscripts, in other words, we don't have Mark's original you know, vellum that he wrote on. We have a copy of it. And the copy we have is a copy of copy of copies of copies, right? And so the way that this basically works is in order for us to know exactly what we have in terms of the original text, the Greek that Mark, all, uh, Mark actually wrote, was we, we have all these different pieces. We have different manuscripts, and they have names, and they have dates. So we have a manuscript from Mark's Gospel, a complete Gospel, maybe from the, from the 800s. And then we might have a fragment or you know, one chapter uh, because the rest is deteriorated because it was written on animal skins or, or um, paper made with plants. Maybe we only have one chapter and it's from the 3rd century. Well, they can compare those two. And they can say, oh, wow, the, the text is almost identical. So they know that the copy from the 800s is at least as good as the copy from the 300s. So what they, what they do is they look at this and they try to determine then what the actual text is. Because we don't, you know, it's not like Paul wrote a Bible. Paul wrote letters and distributed and then people made copies, right? Um, same thing with Mark. He, made a co- made a, he wrote his gospel and distributed it and people copied it. So when they look at these things, what they find is that the earliest manuscripts we have for Mark do not include verses 9 through the rest of the book. They all end at verse 8. In addition to that, all the church fathers seem to indicate in their writings, when they quote from Mark's gospel, that it stopped pretty much at verse 8. They don't have records of verses 9 and following. So what most scholars believe is that these verses were added at a later date by somebody because they only show up in later manuscripts. Now, that might be a concern, except that everything we see here in these verses is found elsewhere in the scriptures. And so, I'm not all that concerned with whether or not verses 9 and following were penned by Mark himself. I'm not even all that concerned whether or not somebody wrote them under the inspiration of the Spirit, because again, everything that's found there is found elsewhere in terms of details, maybe not the exact wording. So there's no, we're not misled by, by looking at the verses. Some will not preach these verses because they say they weren't a part of Mark's gospel, they were added by an editor later on. Well, but if we find those same things elsewhere, then there's no harm in it, right? So I just want to clarify that as we look at that because you may see that in your Bibles. Like I said, some make a big deal out of it. But verses 9 through, through the rest of the book were likely added at some point by a scribe because they felt a little bit uncomfortable with Mark leaving us hanging, especially if they were aware of Matthew's gospel or, or other, gospel, the other gospels that provide more details. So what they did was they went to the, the scriptures and they wrote these verses as the general idea. But what, is, what does it say? These post, the post-resurrection appearances is what this supposed editor, if you will, actually does. So look at verses 9 through 11. Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, 
he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been excuse me, seen by her, they refused to believe it. So the first appearance was to Mary Magdalene. But nobody believed her. Now some will make a big deal out of this, and probably for good reason. Why did Jesus first appear to women? Women were not considered to be reliable eyewitnesses in the first century. But Jesus chose to reveal himself first to a woman. It says a lot. You know, it's interesting how oftentimes in churches, most of the work is done by the women. In fact, churches are oftentimes, they struggle with, with um, male involvement. Don't know why that is. Um, there are many more families where the wives are faithful believers and attend church and the husbands don't. So Jesus knew what he was doing when he approached Mary Magdalene and first appeared to her. And then we find that they didn't believe her. Par for the first century. But I don't think it was just because she was a woman. I think it was partly because nobody could fathom the idea that Jesus really rose from the dead. Again, it's not a normal thing. And so I think we probably need to attribute less of it to being a woman, to being a cultural thing where women just didn't have much standing from a witness standpoint. But it's just an unheard of thing. So after he appeared to Mary, it says that he appeared to two others. If you look at verses 12 and 13, after that he appeared in different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. When they went away and reported it to the others, they did not believe them either. Now according to Luke, one of the individuals was a man named Cleopas. He and another disciple were on the road traveling when Jesus appeared to them. And it's a, it's a fascinating account. It's actually in the book of Luke, chapter 16. Because what Jesus does with them is he kind of hangs out with them for a little while. And we're told by Mark that beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them all the things concerning himself in the scriptures. So what did Jesus do? He sees these two guys walking. We, we, don't, we didn't know who they were. I mean, it just, he gives us one name, but they're not well-known individuals. They're just on a journey. Jesus appears to them. They don't know who he is. Apparently, he's somewhat disguised, if you will. It says that they were prevented from recognizing him, which means that God likely did something to prevent them from seeing him. And he starts with Moses. And he walks him through the Old Testament. All the things related to Christ. And so he probably said, look at what Moses did. And he walks through the, you know, Moses' account. And he gets into the story of Abraham with the promise of the seed and how the Lord will bless Israel and bless all the nations. And goes through that. And then Jacob. And he walks through. And then he gets into the prophets. And he's explaining all the things that have to happen to the Messiah. And these guys are probably engrossed with it, you know, because we remember about Jesus' teaching, people were fascinated because of the way that he handled the Word of God. It was unlike anything they had seen with their scribes and their, te- and their teachers. So I can see these two individuals just being totally engrossed as Jesus walks them through and puts all the pieces together, brings all the connections together that maybe they had missed. And they're just, they're, 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 they're hanging on every word, and then all of a sudden we're told, lights go on. And Jesus is standing right in front of them. Can you imagine what that moment must have been like? 
And so they go flying off to tell the disciples, you won't believe what just... And they're probably talking a million miles an hour. Probably got the disciples going, slow down, slow down, we can't make sense out of what you're saying. And so as they slow them down, and as they, as they give an account, nah, you guys are full of it. Couldn't, couldn't have been Jesus. So it says here that they didn't believe them either. Verse 13. They didn't believe him. What happened after that? Well, look at verse 14. Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. We know that story. He had appeared to them. All of them were there except for Doubting Thomas. Remember that story. Doubting Thomas, the disciples tell Doubting Thomas, guess who we saw? And he's, no, I'm not going to believe it unless I put my fingers in his holes. So this is a condensed version of that. But what does Jesus do? Well, he finally kind of wakes them up a little bit. It says, he reproached them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. They finally got it at this point. We know what happened. They finally believed that it was indeed Jesus. So he not only appears to Mary, he not only appears to these two individuals, now he goes to the, to the uh, eleven, reveals himself to them, rebukes him for it. And what we find here, as you look at all the Gospels together, this was just the beginning, because we find that there are at least ten other appearances of Christ over 40 days. Do the math on that, he probably appeared a lot more than just the ten times, and all we have recorded are ten instances in the Gospels. So ten appearances over 40 days, but it says, according to Paul, that Jesus had appeared to over 500 disciples. Now, why do you suppose this is important? Paul, in his 1 Corinthians account, says, as, and this is you know, probably a good 20 years after the resurrection of Christ, maybe, maybe a little bit longer. I don't remember exactly when 1 Corinthians was written. But Paul says, the gospel I'm preaching... The fact that Christ has risen from the dead can be verified because there's at least 500 witnesses that are, well, most of whom he said, were still alive today that you can go talk to. So the post-resurrection appearances validate the resurrection of Christ. Documented history. It's an actual event. I love this because we talked about this I think last week or the week before, about why did Christ have to die so brutally? What, what was it with the resurrection? Had he just been killed quietly, privately, dropped in a dungeon and died for our sins, nobody would know about it, would they? It's a quiet, private condemnation. Do we know the names of other men crucified? No. No. The Romans crucified thousands and thousands and thousands, but there's something unique that stands out about Christ. Because you have the burial, and you have the resurrection, and all the witnesses to it, which validates it as a historical account. That's the reason why Christianity exists the way that it does today. It's documented, it's historical. God saw fit to make sure that the world would know and the world would see, so that they can't say, oh, that's just a story. They do that, they do that now, don't they? Uh, 
you know, you've got scholars that deny what's written in the scriptures. They try to deny what's there. And it's, it's interesting because it's almost akin to saying the Civil War never happened. It's almost akin to saying the Holocaust never happened. The guys look like idiots when they claim, make such claims. You can go to Auschwitz. You can see it. And so these facts of the resurrection, God wanted to make sure that the world knew that he had made provision for sin, that there's life after death, and that it can be ours as well. No question about it. I love the fact, you'll see, uh, I occasionally do this with my Facebook. Um, I don't do a whole lot of posting on Facebook, but I love to post stuff regarding the archaeological evidence for, the, for supporting the scriptures. There was another one the other day, and it's just almost weekly you see archaeological evidence for the historicity of the scriptures. It's, it's reliable, it's trustworthy. And God made sure that he did that with the resurrection of Christ. He didn't expect us. You know, we oftentimes talk about blind faith. We don't have blind faith, folks. We have a reasonable faith that's based in history. We're not idiots. We can make a valid argument for trusting in the scriptures and the fact that Christ rose from the dead. In fact, the resurrection of Christ is probably the most attested event in history. The last thing that we find in Mark's Gospel here comes in the last five verses or so. Go ahead and read it for us. Verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 15 through 20. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he reproached them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, and he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak of or speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. After that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. It's fitting that Mark's gospel concludes with a commissioning by Christ. This actually matches what we find at the end of Matthew 28. You guys know what that, the very end of Matthew 28 is referred to as the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations by baptizing and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Acts chapter 1 actually begins with the ascension of Christ, but also very similar instructions where he commands them, stick around in Jerusalem for a little while, but then I'm going to send you guys out all over the world. I think that we often forget that Jesus expects us to be his witnesses. He didn't do all this just so that you and I get a nice little bow of resurrection and we can go about our merry way. There's an expectation that we be his witnesses to declare the gospel to the world around us. Do you ever wonder why he didn't suck us up with a giant hoover when he got saved? What's the purpose for leaving us here? Peter, as he's reflecting on the delay in Christ's return, as the world around him says, where is he? They're becoming skeptical. He said he was going to return. 
It's not enough that he rose from the dead that convinces them that he does what he says he's going to do, but now they say, well, yeah, but he's not going to return. And Peter's response to them is, he's just patient. Just patient, because he doesn't want any to be condemned, doesn't want any to perish, but wants as many to come to Christ, to come to salvation as possible. It's a paraphrase of Peter. I think sometimes we get so caught up in this life that we forget the primary reason why Jesus leaves us here is not just that we might have abundant life here, but that we might be his witnesses, that we might make disciples. That's why he's long-suffering. That's why he's been patient. One of the things that I've grown to sort of be uncomfortable with is when I hear Christians talk about the rapture and oh, Jesus just needs to come back now because it's so terrible here and I just wish he would come back, you know. And, and as much as I would love to have Jesus Christ come back, I realize the other side of that is when Jesus Christ comes back, many are condemned. Many are condemned. Jesus says here, he who has disbelief shall be condemned. So rather than begging and pleading for Christ to come back and re you know, take us home because things are so terrible here. Maybe what we ought to be doing is begging him to hold off just a little bit longer. That more might be saved when we do our job as disciples and as his witnesses. It's also fitting that Mark's gospel ends with the ascension of Jesus. He gets to go home. Notice here in the text... Verse 19, So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Remember how Mark's gospel started? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who ultimately left his home, took on flesh, subjected himself to all of the physical limitations, the temptations to die for us. And the Gospel of Mark returns him back to his home, the right hand of the Father. Now what's interesting about that to me is that elsewhere in the Scriptures we're told that he's up there at the right hand of God now directing the Spirit and actually helping us to be his witnesses. Kind of interesting. He is still active. He is still working. We're told that he's preparing a place for us, that he might come back and get us. So again, I think there's an expectation that we can't overlook here. I think if we are truly, truly moved by the gospel, and if we truly understand why Christ did what he did, and if we truly understand the precious gift of life that we've been given because of his death, burial, and resurrection, that then should motivate us to do what he's asked us to do, which is to be his witnesses, to make disciples. Now, I know that's hard for us sometimes because we just get caught up in this life. It begins with our family, with our kids. That's our first priority, is it not? best way to make disciples is to work with your kids. Not suggesting you all be the Duggars and have 20 kids, but uh, the reality of it is that we start with our families, with our kids. But then obviously we have friends and family and co-workers and others that we need to witness to. And it's an expectation of Christ. 